It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Sergeant Willie Krause has captured a partisan resistance fighter on patrol. He marches the partisan through the woods toward headquarters, where he promises the partisan will be interrogated until he forfeits the location of the resistance base. Never, Nazi swine! The partisan shouts as he turns and attacks his captor. Willie Krause runs him through with a bayonet. The partisan screams as he dies. The commotion attracts the other partisans in the area, who open fire when they see the Nazi in their midst. Willie flees into a clearing where he comes across an old church. Strange, Willie has patrolled this area before, but never saw this church before. Not that it should matter right now. The partisans are gaining on him, but they will respect the sanctuary of the church if he gets there first. Inside the church, a relieved Willie is greeted by several monks in hooded robes, who welcome him and give thanks to their master for sending a soldier to them. Willie's relief turns to confusion, and then to terror as the monks, whose faces are all ghastly pale, grab him, strip him of his uniform, and lay him out on a slab of rock. The lead monk draws a long ceremonial blade and holds it above Willie. It is written in our scriptures, the leader says, that on this very night during our black mass, a non-believer would be sent for sacrifice. Willie screams and orders them to release him. The leader tells him not to be afraid, that this sacrifice is for the glory of Baal and their master, Satan. Then the monk plunges the knife down into Willie. Some time later, a pair of Nazi soldiers patrolling the area look for their Sergeant Krause. They have tracked his trail into the clearing, which is absent of any church this time. Willie's trail just suddenly stops there, one of the soldiers says, as if he vanished into thin air. A Right to Die was published in Weird War Tales, issue 49. Cover dated November-December 1976. The story is written by George Cashton, illustrated by Ricardo Villamonte, and edited by Joe Orlando. Hey there, folks, it's PJ Frightful again, thrilled to bring you that little ditty from Weird War Comics. In November, we observe both Veterans Day and Thanksgiving in the United States, and it's also the month for reading war comics. And if Ryan Daly gets his act together, you'll hear this episode in November, too. 
If not, you have my permission to shun him. All of you listeners, shun Ryan right in his stupid face, because he obviously doesn't care about the troops. Anyway, the rest of this episode has less to do with war and more to do with the unspeakable terrors from beyond. And I'm not just talking about the special guest hosts. <laughs> First, Ryan Daly and the irredeemable Shag revive the Wrath of the Spectre from Adventure Comics. And then, Paul Hicks joins Ryan for the next chapter in the saga of Night Force. Check them both out after this break. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Welcome back, listeners. I'm Ryan Daly, and my first guest and I are taking a trip back to the realm of adventure comics and the ghostly Wrath of the Spectre. Who is that guest, you ask? He's the co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which sort of makes me obligated to invite him on the show. Please welcome the irredeemable Shag. What is up, Shag? Hello there, listeners. This is your new pal, AJ Frightful, <laughs> PJ Spunky Little Brother. I'm here with a long-distance dedication to my big bro. The family wants you to come home for the holidays. We miss you, PJ. We want to have you for dinner. Have you for dinner. <laughs> Whoa, man. What just happened? I was – I – Something came over me. I felt like I was uh, speaking in tongues or something there. What was that about? Uh, that voice sounded ridiculous. <laughs> I, I can't imagine anyone would ever use something that stupid on a podcast. <laughs> tried How are you doing, for, sir? I tried doing that voice for 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> well, good. thank you for having me on the show. I mean, it's been on the air, what, uh, three years now, and you're finally getting around to inviting me. I feel really special. I, I held out as long as I could. I was actually trying to think, like, when was the last time we recorded something just the two of us? Was it, was it the first episode of JLI? <laughs> uh, I think it was Live Aid. Uh, we did a thing for Live Aid back in uh, what you know the eighties. So uh, yeah, when, when Midnight the Podcasting Hour got announced, you said you're going to do the Spectre, and I'm like over there jumping in the corner, going, "Oh, oh, 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 oh! Can I please, please, please?" And you're like, "Sure, of course." Three years later, here we are. Thanks, buddy. It was not supposed to take this long to get to your issue. Of <laughs> oh wait, this is only the third Spectre one in three years, isn't that right? <laughs> uh, yes. Now. Bear in mind, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The last Spectre episode dropped the day my son was born. <laughs> so, 
First of all, okay. I've had some stuff going on in the meantime. A little bit, a little bit. I would like to point out on that last Spectre episode, you at that point, you apologized to the audience because it had been six months since the previous Spectre episode. <laughs> so, 16 months later. <laughs> um... But, yeah, I mean, as, you know, ominous signs go, like, every time I was like, oh, I should do the next Spectre. Oh, God, my kid. Well, uh, well, I noticed you invited me on the episode that's going to come out right after the one with uh, the charming Mrs. Drew. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you're trying to make me just look even worse by comparison there. I can't can't hold a candle to her wonderful vampire observation, so I'm I'm dead in the water right from the start. I mean, sabotage is kind of a loaded (laughs) word. The, the good news is I'm coming – if we look just at the Spectre episodes, which I'm sure that's what people are just going to listen to, uh, I come right on the heels of Nathaniel Wayne, which mm-hmm. is good because he came on the show and pretty much crapped all over the Spectre Adventure comics. So that was awesome because you know why? Because Nathaniel hates everything good in life. So um, my, here's my thought. You know, It's been a long time since he did those, that episode, right? So we could just pull a Lucas, right? <laughs> we could go and do a special edition of that episode, edit out. All of his whining and complaining, it'd only be like, I don't know, a minute long, but it would be wonderful. It'd be a nice way to celebrate because these comics are freaking awesome and Nathaniel doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, I could just release just the Howard Simpson intro part <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with Dr. Krezos. Yeah. By the way, for the record, if the synopsis for this episode, uh, for this issue of Adventure Comics wasn't written by Howard Simpson, I'm out. <laughs> I'm like totally doing a hot mic drop and walking out if that's not the case. Well, that's, uh, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> One more thing about the last episode. You, you and Nathaniel talked about the Spectre animated short, which you were praising, and he was just – Taking a crap all over again. Uh, I watched it again in preparation for this episode. Oh my gosh, it is so freaking good. I know, right? You're right. It's like the best animated thing DC ever produced. And even my wife liked it. And she doesn't like any of this comic book crap. I mean, she really dug it too. And and you guys had a discussion about what was the setting, you know, about whether it was the 1970s or not. Dude, it is so clearly the 1970s. I mean, you obviously get the music, you get the cars, you get the fashion, the decor. But the real nod was there's a Science, uh, there's a special effects artist in that short, right? Mm-hmm. And he gets attacked by his, his his special effects dummies, which include characters from The Exorcist, Salem's Lot, and the 1979 King Kong. I mean, clearly, it's a 19, it's a 70s thing. So, <laughs> so good. And it's it's on Netflix, folks. By the way, or wait, it's on the DC app. I know that much. I watched it on the DC app this time. So go find it, folks. It's so freaking good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll gush about that one every episode. I'll just give even the non-Spectre episodes. I'll just remind people, hey, go watch that Spectre <laughs> animated short. So. There you go. All right. Um, well, with all, all that prefatorial stuff out of the way, first time on the show, I remind you again. Um, <laughs> actually, actually, that is not true. Your voice did appear on the Christmas episode last time. Really? What was it? <laughs> it, it was I, it was the Bernie Wrightson like short little. I just did a, a short little Christmas episode, and you read a newscaster or something like. Oh that. yeah yeah yeah. Your yeah, voice yeah. was on for like four seconds. Uh-huh. You know what the fun part was? You know, I was just in a, a background voice thing there. What you guys didn't hear was all the newscast fake stuff I was making up about Ryan and his family. But anyway, that all got edited out. Same question. All the first time guests get. What is your experience with horror as a genre in general and horror comics in particular? Okay. Well, um, horror has always been sort of around my family, at least when I was growing up. My my earliest movie memory is standing in my crib, or maybe it's a playpen. I'm not really sure, but it was in our basement because I lived in Michigan, and my mother was ironing, and on the TV was tuned to some afternoon horror movie rerun. And there I am probably, I don't know, three, four years old watching – or maybe younger. I don't know – watching horror movies. 
Then my first movie theater or trip to the movies, let's put it that way, memory was at a drive-in theater with my parents. Again, I had to be probably the same age. And they were watching, again, a horror movie, and I was cowering in the back seat. And I remember it was 3D because I refused to wear my glasses, hoping that it would make it less scary. But in reality, all I'm left with is these memories of this blue and red blurry skull menacing the camera, which scared the crap out of me for years. Now, I think part of the reason that horror was sort of around my family was because we had uh, a close personal friend of our family was a local horror TV show host. Like, um, well, his name, his character name was Count Zapula in Traverse City, Michigan, and he would introduce the Saturday Night Horror Movie reruns. Kind of like um, if you remember SCTV, the the character of like Count Floyd, you know, the the guy who would be, you know, sort of the horror host. Do you know what I'm talking about? These horror I, hosts? Yeah, I, I didn't I, I didn't watch them myself, but I know of them. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so for those of you who are younger, in, in like the 70s and in that kind of era, maybe early 80s, they would show horror movie reruns. But they would actually have a local talent introduce the movie. And it would be like, no – and it would usually be in character, like you know, a, a vampire or something like that. In this case, this guy was a vampire, Count Dra- Zapula. Be like, you know, in tonight's horror-filled feature, you'll be so scared. You know, that kind of stuff. It was silly, campy, but it was fun. So Count Zapula would do this bits, and he had a little dog. It was a sidekick named Igor. And he would play lots of these classic black and white horror movies from like the 1950s and 60s. And it was 11.30 night on Saturday. So I don't know how I ever saw it, but I have memories of it. I, I don't – maybe my family let me stay up because he was a family friend. I don't know. And he would film the, the opening segment and do like an intermission segment or something like that. And it was done on a total shoestring budget. I mean they barely had any money. And the set was literally just a coffin in front of a curtain. That was it. In fact, the, the studio where they filmed was actually the newsroom. That's the only studio they had. And so they would put the curtain in front of the news set so you couldn't see it. And um, it, it's totally like, as Rob likes to say, it's fallen down the memory hole. Like no one really remembers this kind of stuff. And really it's only relegated to this one YouTube clip that I shared with Ryan tonight. It's from an old blooper show that's hosted by Elvira. That's about the only thing you can find on Count Zapula. Did you watch the clip? I did, but I really only focused on Elvira. I wasn't paying attention to the <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Well, the the, the host, uh, Count Zapula, was, his real name was Don Melvoin. He was a very sweet guy. He also hosted other shows uh, and like uh, this afternoon kid show called Deputy Don and stuff like that. And, and Don would come around to the house and he'd visit with my dad all the time. My dad worked in TV and so they knew each other through that. And he was, it was just neat knowing this guy was part of our family. And I must have been there for some of the taping because I can remember – being on the set watching these things filmed. So anyway, so, so horror has been around my family since I was a little kid. Then I, you know, fast forward to middle school. My parents are divorced and, you know, my mom's working hard to make money for us to get by. And she makes the foolish, foolish error of signing a waiver, allowing me to rent R-rated movies from the local video shop. So I spend the entire summer of 1986 while she's at work watching every you could cheap – You could get a permission slip for that? I'm sorry. And apparently in where I grew up we could. <laughs> and Brian's now beating his head on the table like, why, why? I could have rented Porky's. Anyway, um, I spent the summer of 1986 watching every cheap slasher and horror movie that this video rental store had. I mean just every single one. It, like I, ever, I don't know whether I actually watched this movie or not. But the one we always would talk about, me and my buddy Neil, was uh, it was the I Dismember Mama. That's the one we'd always talk about. I don't know whether it's because we like the name or we actually saw it. I really don't remember. So then you go forward to high school, like early college, and, and we'd go to the opening night of every horror movie that came out. And back then it was mostly like slasher flicks, you know, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, that kind of stuff. And then um, oddly enough, somewhere along the line, I drifted away from horror. And like nowadays I'm a total wuss. Like my wife watches American Horror Story. 
and I don't, even, I don't even want her to tell me about it. it like freaks me out. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. And um, it, for example, I haven't seen The Ring, which, as I understand it, is why I'm still alive. So, uh, <laughs> yes, that's crucial to the plot. Yes, good, good. Apparently, apparently so. So, so I, I, I was deep into horror for years. Again, more of the slasher kind, and then it just grew away from it. So, as far as horror comics go, oddly enough, I don't think I ever really read a horror comic until Sandman. And, and and even that's debatable whether that's a horror comic or not. It certainly yeah. started that way. Yeah, but, uh, dark fantasy kind of, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really grow up reading any of these. So Sandman's probably the first horror comic I ever read. <laughs> All right, well then uh, let's talk about the Spectre in particular. And what is your history with this character, whether it's this adventure comic series or his other appearances? Interestingly enough, as you might expect, given this is the Fire and Water Podcast Network founded on Aquaman and Firestorm, my origin with the Spectre is actually deeply tied in with Aquaman and Firestorm, surprisingly. Um, I first bumped into the Spectre probably in Crisis or All-Star Squadron. I really don't remember which. Didn't leave a lot of an impression. Then I know the first Spectre comic I ever bought was 1988 with the Millennium crossover. Ooh, there's a good one. <laughs> and uh, again, wasn't impressed. And then it, it was in 1990, around that time. I had decided I was going to become an Aquaman comic book collector. I was going to buy every comic book appearance of Aquaman. And I was on the back issue hunt, let me tell you. And Aquaman appeared frequently in the back of Adventure Comics. It was sort of like um, like his forgiving ex-girlfriend. Every time that he would go off on his own or try, you know, try another girl, if you will, uh, it would fail. And you know, Adventure Comics would take him back and be like, it's okay, honey. You'll always have a place here. Anyway, in some of these Adventure Comics, Aquaman shared a few issues of his run with the Spectre. And so I ended up, because they were Aquaman issues, I bought them. I read the Spectre issues. I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, and these are the Fleischer Aparo ones. So I went all in. I bought every single one of the adventure comics I could find. I bought the 1970s Secret Origins issue with the Spectre. I don't know if you've ever heard of Secret Origins or not. Anyway, um, then I bought the Wrath of Spectre reprints, which I assume is what your trade paperback is reprinting, is actually the reprints, not the original. Um, so really, I bought them twice. I bought the original issues, and then I bought the reprints. And then eventually, I bought the stupid things a third time with the Showcase Presents. I have a sickness. <laughs> and then uh, in 1989 and 1990, in that era, John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake actually did this amazing run on Firestorm. <laughs> My favorite character. And two years after that, Austin Durr and Mandrake reunited again for a very high-profile release, as you know, of The Spectre. And truthfully, what a lot of people don't remember was when The Spectre series launched by Austin Durr and Mandrake, really, initially, what they were doing, they were just trying to capitalize on the popularity of the Ghost Rider, but they went in a whole different direction and made that series amazing. Yeah, they did, and that was a really good book. Yeah. And now with my love for the Fleischer Aparo uh, Spectre and the Ostrander Mandrake Firestorm, you know, heck, I mean, I was all in. In fact, they released a glow-in-the-dark poster of the Spectre by Mandrake. (laughs) I had that thing on my bedroom wall for years. Yeah, I was a player, folks. You could tell. And then – and I've kept up with the Spectre a lot since then. I I shouldn't say a lot. I've kept up with the Spectre some since then. Like I I read the Hal Jordan issues of Spectre. Eh. Uh, I've read a little bit of the Christmas Allen stuff. You know, stuff like that. I've dropped here in in and out. But my favorite – will always be this adventure comics run. It's so freaking good. Mm-hmm. And I've been really looking at this. In fact, getting ready. I got so excited for this, getting ready for this recording. I've actually reread almost every single one of the issues from the adventure comics run of featuring the Spectre. I read the uh, – I flipped through like a, a lot of the – I don't – in the Wrath of the Spectre, they've got those three new tales. You know, they're in the back there that uh, never got printed back then. I've been going through those. I just got – I rewatched the short. I mean, again, just so excited. And I started reading some of the – in the Wrath of the Spectre. I don't know if it's in your trade paperback or not. There's some really interesting articles in there, uh, some written by – I think one of them, Paul Kupperberg, and they interview Fleischer. They interview a lot of different people. 
And uh, it's just interesting to read, you know, because this run started in 74, right? And according – and I don't think about it this way. To me, superhero comics are like the biggest thing, right? Mm-hmm. But according to Fleischer, at least at that point, 74, horror was actually the biggest genre at the time. And so the Spectre was a no-brainer to them. And, and sort of the fascinating thing to me, if you look at this run, you know, it's Spectre. It, he is a superhero. He's not a horror character at this point. But in this run, there's no JSA. There's no superheroes. They don't bother explaining the whole Earth 2 thing. It's not necessary to the story, so they just skip it. Um, now, there is one mention of Clark Kent in an issue, <laughs> and it's and it's a weird mention. It's in a couple issues from now. It's a weird mention because they actually reference Superman at the same time. Like, they know Clark Kent is Superman, so I don't know what that's about. Um, but either way, they, you know, they just fight normal power bad guys. Sometimes it gets a little weird with, like, Nazis or animated mannequins or whatever, but for the most part, they're just crooks. And so it's a very different kind of superhero comic, and that's you've talked a little bit about the the problems where they got uh, there was the lawsuit and you know the ruining superhero comics with Spectre and stuff like that. And a lot of this was tied around the deaths, the deaths for the criminals, and how interesting they were. You know, you talked about in the first one he melted the guy, and the second one he used the scissors to snip the guy, right? And the the articles in Wrath of the Spectre is what kind of crystallizes in my head. The Punisher just kills, right? Carries a gun. Mm-hmm. Same sort of thing. It's catharsis of Punisher killing the bad guys. There's no joy. There's no imagination. He's just an efficient revenge machine. That's what the Punisher is. The Spectre's kind of the same, except he's creative. He um, It means he's thinking about this stuff, right? He, he's thinking about how to murder the criminals. And why is he thinking about that? You know, near cycling, is he trying to satisfy a desire? Is there a need for uh, the death to match the crime? You know, does he enjoy it? And according to the writers and the editors, yes, the Spectre does enjoy this. It enjoys killing criminals, not in a sadistic way. They're very careful to say that. And I don't know if they're just saying that for the article, but they said not in a sadistic way. He just he enjoys the justice side of it, which is very strange because it got me thinking about it. All right. So I'll pose the question to you. Who's the closest analog of someone who's very, very creative in the way he murders people and just sort of entertain themselves? Well, maybe, maybe this is just because it's on my brain because I just listened to a podcast by our good buddy Michael Bailey. But are you thinking of like Freddy Krueger? That is exactly who I'm thinking of. Okay. Yes. The Spectre and Freddy Krueger have a lot in common, which is kind of weird to think about it. Sure, yeah. It, they, they're, they're modes of murdering people, whether the targets are innocence or if it's a sort of like righteous vengeance and justice. They're not quite symbolic retribution. Like it, it's not necessarily the death fits the sin or the, the crime necessarily, but they are somewhat emblematic or thematic of, of what's going on in the story. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy the guy who he got cut with the scissors, he was uh, working in a, like a hair salon place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always connected. You're right. And it's also interesting that the, the way this works, because these are comic code approved books. You know, nowadays they can do anything they want. But back then they had to be careful with the code. And the editor, uh, Joey Orlando, right, uh, he was purposely trying to push against the code. You know, because he, 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 he like took joy in screwing with the code, <laughs> probably because he used to work for EC Comics and they shut him down. But, uh, you know, Aparo was, was having to play the middle, though. So he'd be very, very careful the way he drew the deaths. The camera would – because my wife and I was looking at this. We were, we were looking at – so she was looking over my shoulder while I was reading some of these comics, and she's cracking jokes about where word balloons are coming from. She's like, oh, that, that girl's talking out of her belly button because that's where the word <laughs> balloon was going. And, and then she sees the scissors, right? The scissors. She's like, oh, my gosh, they cut that person in half. I'm like, did they? Look at it. You see the scissors around the guy. Then you see you know, him dead on the ground, but there's something covering him. So Aparo is very, very careful to pan away or do something in silhouette, make sure something's obscuring the gross parts, all because of the comic's code. But the thing is you don't remember that when you read it. 
When you remember – when you think back later, you remember the scissors snipping the guy in the half. You never saw that, but that's what you remember. Well, if, if Aparo's art was rejected, he was the one who would have to redraw the thing. So I'm sure, that's true. That's I'm sure true. he was more careful about it just for the sake of like, getting the work done on time. Yeah. Now, I have a memory of a really gruesome death from the Spectre that I can't find anywhere. Like, it's gone, except there are people referencing it online, but I can't find it anywhere. And maybe one of you people at home can remember me, or, or help me. I mean, I remember the Spectre turning a guy into a candle. Not not the not the first adventure comics where the guy melts him, right? He melts a guy there. But I remember Spectre actually turning the guy into a candle and, like, very slowly lighting him on his head. Like, you know, like you would light the wick of a candle. The guy being like, no, don't do it! And melting the guy as a candle. I remember that, but I can't find it anywhere maybe i made it up i don't know but that's i don't know i've found other references to him turning someone into a candle and lighting it i don't know where it's from so if anybody can help me at home i would love to love to know because i love that image in my head well it's kind of sick to say i love it but you know that anyway. sounds really familiar yeah i can't find it that sounds so really I, familiar. I, I, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll look for that too now as we begin to get into this issue like I've, i was looking at you know the, these stories are a bit formulaic which I think is going to be uh, a little reflected in our discussion because there's it's all it's very much like the last issue um, it, because you, basically what you get is every every issue starts with the opening splash page and it immediately reveals who the bad guy is that's going to get it there's never any question about who's going to die also in, at least in these formula ones you knew who did, you knew the crime you knew who did it there was no mystery. This was not a mystery story. It was simply a – it was about the catharsis of catching the criminal and watching them suffer. I mean that's really what these stories were about. And I guess that was tied to – you You mentioned Joe Orlando got mugged. So I'm guessing that must be part of that. For listeners who might not remember our story from the first time that we covered the Spectre story, that yeah, it was in the backstory that Joe Orlando was mugged and, and he was just full of like this righteous anger and wanting to think about how to punish people. And I, that was a lot of the – the emotional fuel for what went into the series was like really putting criminals through their meat grinder <laughs> in, in some <laughs> cases more literally than not. Right. But, oh, there's some good deaths coming up. I, I want to talk about, but I'm trying not to spoil it for when you do those episodes in eight years. Um, <laughs> Now, for these for these initial ones that follow the formula, it was always thirteen pages. Did all the stuff we just talked about, but here's but you know this is actually the last issue, the third one of the initial formula, because and if you read the interviews, Fleischer realized he was falling into a rut, so he purposely changes the formula. Next issue that you cover, I'm a little jealous. I'm not there. Is a really cool one. It breaks the formula. It's actually twenty pages. There's actually a mystery. Uh, later on down the line, there's even a two parter and. Now some of the sto- some of the stories did fall back into the formula, and that's okay too. But uh, inflation starts lacing in continuity. You already mentioned that with Gwendolyn being in the previous story, and she's going to show up in this one in a minute. And which was unusual for horror books back then. Usually it was just one and dones in horror books. They didn't have this ongoing continuity. So that's interesting. And they also introduced you know like uh, Earl Crawford, who's the the news reporter. He's basically the Mister McGee of this story. So um, yeah, I mean it's just interesting the the history on this and the and the formula that changes and and adapts. And and then those final three stories that appear in Wrath of the Spectre really break the formula so um fun stuff fun stuff all the way around i love i love this series so much well then let's not wait any longer let's uh, let's dive into this issue uh we are looking at the swami and the specter from adventure comics 433 it was cover dated may slash june of 1974 according to mike's amazing world of comics the on sale date was february 28th 1974 the story as we have said is by michael fleischer the art by jim aparo 
the art continuity slash breakdowns by Russell Carley. The editor was Joe Orlando, and Aparo also did the cover. Now, I can actually look at this cover because this is one of the issues from the series that I actually have, the actual issue. Like, I do yeah. have the Wrath of the Spectre paperback. I've also got about half of these, uh, the actual floppies, and mine is not a good condition copy. It's pretty Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, Mine's in very good condition because I love it so much. So I'm actually looking at, at this moment, I'm looking at the actual issue and the showcase presents. So I'm looking at Aparo's gorgeous artwork in black and white, which mm-hmm. looks stunning there too, by the way. Nice. Uh, the cover shows it's a basically a seance table with a, a, a crystal ball in the center of it. And the specter is floating out of that, and he is grabbing a kind of miniature version of the Swami in question, the, the leader of the seance, who looks terrified. In fact, they all look terrified. Everybody sitting around the table is like lurching backwards in, in revulsion at the sight. What do you think about the cover? Um, it's okay. It's 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 not great. It's not my favorite cover of the Adventure Comics run, that's for sure. It, it, the Spectre's a little too defined for my liking. Like, I really mm-hmm. like in the very first one, 431, where it's, he, it's more of an impression of him. In this one, on 433, he, he's clearly defined. I don't really get why he's holding a miniature little Swami. Like, both the miniature Swami and the regular Swami both look horrified. And the miniature one, I guess, is supposed to be kind of a voodoo doll, maybe, is what you're supposed to think. I, I don't know that I love the cover. You know, it, as far as illustration-wise, the people look great. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous illustrated, I guess what I should say is I don't know that I love the composition of the cover. Yeah, I kind of I like everything about it except sort of the specter and kind of for for the same reasons. I almost think like you could take the miniature Swami out of it. He could just be like pointing or something or just yes. materializing and the people would have the exact same reaction. That would um, be a much better scenario to go with. Yes, I agree. So, I mean, it's but I gotta, it, yeah, it, it's go. there's nothing wrong with it per se, but when you compare it to the other covers in general or like other Aparo work, it's not something that you're going to remember a lot. Yeah. Now, I will say that the um, the Spectre's look, I mean, the the collar with the buttons and the cape and the hood and the gloves and the white skin, it just is totally badass. I love the way the Spectre looks. He's just uh, an awesome looking uh, – I don't, I, I don't know. I shouldn't call him a hero. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He's an awesome looking character. And I, it makes me very happy to see Aparo illustrated because he's just a master at making the Spectre look totally boss. I've never, I've never thought about this until now, but I don't know if there's any artist – who is necessarily better at drawing the shadow of like a hood or something covering the top half of a face so that the eyes are all like in shadow. It's just the brim right. between the specter and the phantom stranger and even Batman. A lot of the time, like Aparo had that down. Yes. I was going to say all three of my Aparo. Yeah. So <laughs> absolutely. Now Mandrake, but Mandrake did him. It was taking his nod from Aparo, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, I, I want to credit Mandrake, but really it, it's, it's Aparo where it starts. Right. Right. And that, but because like, even this, even look, this, yeah. um, this showcase collection I have mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, lots of stories from the 60s of Spectre. And his hood does obscure his eyes, but it just doesn't look awesome. It just looks kind of, eh. Yeah. It isn't until Aparo steps in where you're like, ooh, that looks cool and menacing. And um, yeah, one more thing, you know, the, the, the formula continues here. As usual, on the cover, you know exactly who's going to die, <laughs> uh, but we get the wrong method of execution. Right. A popular mystic swami named Silal holds one of his regular seances for a group of rich, older women. At the conclusion of their communion with the spirit world, he reminds them all to continue donating money to their great spiritual research. Mrs. Vandergilt tells Swami Silal that her husband doesn't believe in these psychic endeavors and refuses to pay any more to their cause. 
Silal tells the woman that he will speak with the spirits in an effort to change her husband's mind. But after she leaves, Silal tells his assistant slash henchman, Smiley, to make an example of Mr. Vandergilt, else his disapproval spread to the rest of the group. The next day, at the construction site of one of Mr. Vandergilt's properties, Smiley disengages the emergency parking brake on the giant dump truck, which rolls out of control and crushes Vandergilt. Lieutenant Jim Corrigan investigates the tragic accident. Mrs. Vandergilt tells him she suspected something awful would happen because her husband angered the spirit world over Swami Silal's protestations. Corrigan knows Silal by reputation as a con man with a lengthy rap sheet. He pays Silal a visit and lets the Swami know that he's investigating him for murdering Vandergilt. After Corrigan leaves, though, Swami Silal is next visited by Gwendolyn Sterling, last seen in the previous issue. She tells him that she has fallen in love with a ghost and wonders if the master of the occult can perform any rite or spell that would turn her man-crush human again and thus make him dateable. Silal quietly thinks Gwen is crazy, but he offers to solve her predicament in order to fleece her out of some cash. When she tells him that the man in question is Jim Corrigan, however, Silal changes his plan and plots to kill the detective and Gwendolyn. The following night, under the Swami's direction, Gwen summons Jim Corrigan to an old abandoned cemetery where she believes that Silal will perform his mystic rite to cure the detective's ghostly affliction. Instead, as Jim is driving up the path toward Gwen, Silal's thug Smiley throws a hand grenade at Jim's car. It explodes, and Jim Corrigan seems to be engulfed in flame. Then, Smiley comes after the terrified Gwen with a knife, but before he can stab her, the smoke of the burning car takes the form of the ghastly, green-hooded Spectre. Startled by the avenging Spectre, Smiley turns to run, but a pair of other ghosts grab him and drag him into an open grave. Smiley screams in terror as the ghosts fill the grave with fresh dirt, burying the man alive. The specter returns to Gwen in the form of Jim Corrigan. She tells him how desperate she was to be in love with him that she asked the Swami for help, but Jim once again tells her they cannot be together because A. He's not alive, and B. He's kind of married to his unearthly mission to punish the wicked. <laughs> Elsewhere, Swami Silal conducts another seance, but when he looks into the crystal sphere, he sees the face of the specter looking back. Silal screams in front of the confused members of his flock, even as the specter floats out of the crystal and uses his awesome power to turn the Swami into glass. His chair tips over and the glass Silal falls to the floor, shattering to pieces. Outside, Jim Corgan walks away, having brought the wrath of the Spectre onto yet another evildoer. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, what did you think of the story? I enjoyed it. It's quite a, quite a bit. It, it follows again the formula, so there's it's a little more of the same, but that's okay. You know, and the, it's interesting too. I wonder if Fleischer planned this out, like the way he decided to attack the goon, the bad guys, because like the first issue you guys covered, it was thieves and like callous murderers, and the second issue it was like a business partner betrayal and a murder, and this time it's someone swindling people out of money. And, you know, of course, a murder. So it's almost like he's trying to hit different types of crime. So mm -hmm. not to repeat himself there. Um, so the first thing that comes to my mind here was the whole Swami thing. Right. So that like that really started bugging me. I was like, OK, that's kind of an uncommon word in pop culture nowadays. But like as a kid, I remember in the 70s, it came up a lot. So I did a little research. And the first thing I wondered was, 
is the word racist? I don't really know. (laughs) So I had to look it up. Turns out, no, it's not. It is a, it's a Hindu male religious teacher. So it's not a racist term. However, perhaps the usage in this story might be because the Swami doing the seance, because near as I can tell, I could not find any reference to a Swami doing a a seance except in fiction. Right. Swami's usually the bad guy trying to swindle people out of their money. So. Yeah, did you uh, did the story or the that element of it seem familiar at all? Well, I mean, I think I we we all saw a lot the especially in the seventies when there's such a fascination with magic and magicians and things like that. Usually, what goes hand in hand when you get that sort of thing is you get people who want to debunk these theories. Mm-hmm. And so, I would say in the seventies and eighties, there was a lot of this kind of like mysticism stuff being debunked or being shown as the bad guys in in fiction. Uh, I, I can't think of a particular example. Did you have one in mind? So. For those of you, you kindly reminded people of the Secret Origins book. If anybody remembers back from the Secret Origins podcast, uh, Gene Hendricks and I talked about the origin of the Spectre. Okay. In that story, basically Roy Thomas kind of threw the first three Spectre stories all together in one. Uh, oh. And if you go back to the Golden Age Spectre, his third story, his third of it, and his, his first, basically his origin is told over two stories. The first mm-hmm. story is. Jim Corgan is murdered by gangsters and he's revived by the voice of God or whatever to be this this agent of revenge. The second yeah, that's story, the one I remember pretty clearly. Yeah. yeah. The second part of that is as the Spectre, he takes revenge on the gangsters who killed them, kills them off. Mm-hmm. The third story, which is separate, but for some reason Roy Thomas threw it into his secret origins story, is about him saving his girl, Jim Corgan saving his girlfriend from a corrupt swami or, or corrupt like, mystic no guy. No way. Was kind of, like, really? Over. Yeah. And I, I think it, I, gosh, it's, I haven't read it since that podcast, but I think it kind of ends the same way. I think there's something about like the, the spirits coming out of the glass ball or turning him into glass. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Um, mm. But I just thought it was kind of funny that they're re- returning to that same sort of plot, and that was the third appearance of the Spectre in the Golden Age. This is the third story in the Fleischer apparel run. Yeah. Like that, that parallel I found kind of interesting. It's quite possible. If you read those interviews in Wrath of the Spectre, Fleischer talks about how he really went back to the – tried to capture the essence of the Golden Age stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's exactly what was going on. That's a really interesting uh, parallel there. Yeah. Hmm. I, okay. I, maybe it was just because like that was – in the Golden Age, that was one of the first kind of really unusual ways that the, the Spectre murdered his enemy. Like one of the more like kind of like fascinating examples. So that kind of like puts the – I don't know, the, like the image in their heads or something like that. So. We do love the way Spectre murders people. <laughs> and if it came from there, then that's a tribute to this story then. I'll give it that. Or this is a tribute to that story, I guess I should say. <laughs> the other thing about this story is it reminds me a lot of an episode of Batman the Animated Series. Uh, okay. There's a particular episode called Prophecy of Doom um, where you basically you swap the, the Swami in this story for this mystic guy named Nostromos. Um, mm. Again, who's just a con man, but he has an assistant, basically a technical, uh, like stuntman, type, like effects coordinator, who, like sure. you know, kind of creates like the illusion that he's doing all of these magical things in order to build these old women out of their money. So yeah, if, if anybody and I, you know, Chris Franklin is like, ooh, I know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> it was a good episode. The Nostromos was voiced by Michael DeBars. Um, Heather Locklear did a voice in that episode. So, Whoa! so you know, got my attention. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I wrote that in my notes just for you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. 
Um, speaking of rich people, uh, so the Vandergilts, right? That cracks me up. And uh, so the Vandergilts is this rich family who, you know, obviously based on the Vanderbilts, right? So all they do is change one letter. And uh, so it got me thinking, like, so change a letter, rich people. You know who's part of the Vanderbilt family, right? And like in real life, who's out there in the media? Um, remind me. Anderson Cooper. Really? So, yeah, he's part of the Vanderbilt clan. So I if don't we change one, no, I didn't. Yeah, and if you change one letter, so maybe they could do another Spectre story with the Vandergilts again, and Anderson Pooper could be in there. <laughs> that that might work. So now, speaking of Vandergilts, he's uh, Jim Aparo's Commissioner Gordon. Uh, yes, with fifteen twenty pounds extra. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Aparo loves to draw pipes, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, w- I wonder if he uh, Aparo smoked a pipe himself. I should probably go back and check that DC Comics Presents where he had to draw himself <laughs> in the issue. <laughs> so I should go back and check that one. Hmm. Now, also, folks, let this be a lesson to you at home. Vandergilt was crushed to death by a multi-ton dump truck on his construction site. And that's what happens when you don't wear a hard hat. So <laughs> always wear a hard hat when you're on a construction site. He could have saved his life. Could have. Safety first. Exactly. And the more you know. That that truck was ridiculously precariously balanced. And, <laughs> and then when oh, – what's his face? Uh, Corgan later says that the, the act, it was ruled an accident. What? <laughs> How? How was that ruled? No, that, at, at best, it could have gotten ruled negligence. Right. You know, like you didn't put the parking brake on. But at be, an, an accident? No, 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 no. Worst cops ever. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently uh, the Swami life pays – and I'm just going through my notes here. Uh, apparently the Swami life pays very, very well. Uh, the Swami has very impressive gardens. I was yeah. really impressed with that. And if you look at it – and sometimes when the Spectre fought people, like the first issue, there was a whole gang of criminals, right? And then the second issue where you guys cover, there was like four or five of them. This time it's just two. So, I mean, there's the Swami and his assistant um, Smiley. You know, and that's it. So it's a rather small operation, which maybe that's why the Swami's doing so well for himself. It's like the low overhead costs. You know, if you're going to be a criminal, keep your gang small. The more you hit, hey, so. less less profits to divvy up. Less people you have to secretly plot against if they betray you. Exactly. It all comes down to economics. Yeah. So, I love the way Aparo draws explosions. The man can draw a punch, and he can draw explosions. Those two things are amazing. I love the car exploding. I love the specter sort of coming out of the car, the mm-hmm. fire. Like I didn't realize how much I love that shot until I looked at it in black and white. Uh, it's really, really nice in black and white, and that made me go back and look at the color. And I'm like, oh wow, it's really like nicely illustrated. And uh, and shortly after that, so the you know Smiley, the Swami's assistant. Which by the way, okay, we said Swami isn't racist, but you know Corgan calling him Punjab, totally racist. That was out of line, bro. Anyway, so let me ask you a question here. So Smiley is killed by the spirits coming out of the graves, right? Mm-hmm. Did the specter do that? Or did that just happen? I, I think that's part of the Spectre's power. I think okay. that, that's just a visual manifestation of what he is doing to him um, by having these – because like, why are the two ghosts coming out of the open grave and everything? But yeah, I don't necessarily – I don't think those are just independent operator like, okay. uh, like <laughs> spirits who are just opportunistic. They're like, hey, that guy needs to die. Let's take care of it. Like, <laughs> they, they didn't just happen to be there like looking for somebody to kill. I think that's the influence of the specter sort of raising them up or summoning them. Um, then and, I think the specter's pulling one of those moments where you try and rationalize your own actions and you try and convince yourself. Because he's like, even the spirits of the long dead could not tolerate the stench of his evil. Yeah. No, dude, Jim, you did that. Don't don't try and blame this on someone else. I didn't kill him. Those other ghosts did. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I really like this death scene in terms of like uh, like of the murders that we've seen. I, I this is this is one that like gets to me and. Uh, 
I, I, again, I was thinking about this just because of You're talking about Smiley, Sm- yeah, Smiley, Smiley, okay. Smiley's. Mm-hmm. Um, the and again, this goes back again to what we were talking about, like with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger, and this jump started in my mind because of uh, Bailey's recent episode of Fortress of Bailey-tude. In the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, uh, Johnny Depp's death which is like really simple, really quick, but like that he's just sleeping on his bed and Freddy's hand comes out from underneath like the sheets or whatever and just pulls him down into a hole in the bed. Mm -hmm. I saw that movie around the same time that I saw the first aliens. Oh, Um, and one of the scenes in that movie that really messed with me for a, for a while when I was a kid was Bill Paxton's death, Hudson's death who is, you know, going on this, like, just losing his mind, shooting up these aliens in, like, this, like, you know, very macho last stand until the floor erupts underneath him and the aliens drag him down into this darkness and you just hear him screaming. Like, those two things at, like, a very young, impressionable age really made me afraid of things popping out from underneath me, like, pulling me down into nothingness. <laughs> so that kind of, like, left... Like, even though, like, I watch those now and I'm just kind of, like, fascinated by those scenes and those deaths, it, like, they don't scare me now, but, like, just watching this moment of him being pulled into the grave by these ghosts and then, like, it's filling up with dirt and him, like, just kind of, like, still kind of makes me, like, this is the one... Like, you can cut me in half with giant scissors. I would take that <laughs> over this. You know, uh, Aparo also using the silhouettes again. So mm-hmm. the ghosts mm-hmm. are the silhouettes uh, pulling him down. So now I don't know that they had to do a silhouette there, but it's still an effective tool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's totally creepy. The whole bury alive thing is terrifying. Now, if I'd known that the Johnny Depp uh, pulling you pulling you through the bed thing was terrifying to you, I would have had better plans for when we shared a bed <laughs> in, uh, in 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 Charlotte. I would have had you know something planned for that. But anyway, that's why I didn't um, tell you until now. <laughs> smart move, smart move. So for me, Nightmare on Elm Street, the th- and I don't remember this from the first one or the second one. The thing that always freaks me out like in memory-wise was when the girl – probably Nancy I would think in the first one. But anyway, she's trying to run away from Freddy and she runs up the stairs. But – and I'm assuming it's just like oatmeal or something. But her foot sinks into the steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can't yeah. go up. And like that's every bad nightmare I ever had <laughs> as a kid is I couldn't get away. I couldn't move fast enough. So that thing just freaks me out still to this day when I think about it. Thanks for that. I won't be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> Well done. Speaking of deaths, so the Swami is turned to glass, right, and falls and shatters. And I will tell you, in black and white, it looks so much better. Like, there's nothing wrong with with the illustration of the Swami as glass, but the black and white version, you can really make out the lines so much better. And it actually looks like he's made of glass. It, hmm. it, there's really, or I guess we should be saying crystal, because that's the whole idea, is it's mimicking the crystal ball. Right. But it's, uh, it really is a nice, nice drawing of him as glass. It's very creepy. It looks almost a little uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, kind of like, with a big open mouth screaming. I'm looking at the... Um the reprint version in my trade paperback and the original, the paperback, the trade, um, it's much more defined. You can really see the lines a lot okay. more. Um, my original copy, yeah, it's 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 almost like just like kind of a mass of kind of white and gray. It's like an yeah. Iceman type of thing. But yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Now here's a here's a I mentioned Raiders a minute ago. So here's a Raiders sort of moment for you. This story would have turned out exactly the same without Gwendolyn. <laughs> True. She made she, she changed the direction of the story, but she had no impact on the end or the way it ended. It was just it, it still would have happened exactly the same without her, even though she was sort of integral to the middle of the plot. So uh, I, I I wonder if she was created by Fleischer after he sort of worked out the framework because you know she was in the previous one, and then when he's working on this one, I wonder if she sort of worked out the story beats and then said, you know, why should keep this romance thing going? And it didn't really affect the plot, but it still was fit in there. I could be making crap up. I don't know. 
they were going to gun for Corgan regardless. And Corgan was investigating it no matter what. So, yeah. So here's one more question for you. Did this story feel particularly shouty to you? Like loud, yelling? Mm, I don't recall thinking that when I read it, um, other than the obvious, like the death scenes and the screams. But Because, you know, for a 13-page story, 173 exclamation marks <laughs> is a lot. It really, really is a lot. Not that I counted. Oh, wait, I did. I might have missed a few, but I came up with 173 in a 13-page story. Now, that averages to about 13 exclamation points per page or roughly three per panel or two per panel. That's a lot of screaming. Read a Stan Lee comic book from the 60s. You're going to see the same thing. You're going to see more. Probably true. Uh, But what made me realize it was on page 12, right, when the the Swami's looking in the crystal ball and the specter comes out and only the Swami can see him. You know, the rest of the old ladies he's, you know, bilking around the table can't see him. And they're whispering to each other. And yet there are exclamation (laughs) points within the whisper balloon. That's what made me go, wait a minute. What's going on here? (laughs) So, uh, yes, uh, Michael Fleischer obviously went to the school of um, school of Stanley without a doubt. Yeah. Now, I have a dumb question here, and I should have done my research on this, but Michael Fleischer, is he related to, like, the Fleischer Superman cartoon family? I don't think so. I, I think I I looked that up once a long time ago, um, and I don't think there's any connection, but I could be wrong. Okay. Maybe someone at home knows. And, and again, probably should have researched this before we started recording, but it just occurred to me. So. Should have asked Zoom. Ah, oh, that's true. He probably knows. He's already writing us a letter. <laughs> So let me ask you, because uh, you guys pooped all over the last uh, installment of, of Adventure Comics Wait, with Spectre. Who, who, who's this Na- weird white man? <laughs> Nathaniel did. So is this one better or worse than the one with the uh, rich billionaire guy and his business partner? Uh, I think I like that story better. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I certainly like I like the the scene at the cemetery in this one. I like the uh, the ambush with Smiley attacking the Spectre. You're right. I mean, like for me, like the that that those couple of pages, the explosion of the car, the Spectre coming up out of the burning wreckage, and then the ghost taking this guy down. You know, like those three pages, and and Gwen actually coming up to Jim, like trying to confess, and him basically saying we can't be together. I, I think that's just a great scene. But the rest of the certainly like, basically all the stuff with the Swami. I don't really care about. Um, hmm. I, I think the the other story, like kind of like the budding relationship and setting up the bomb and everything in the beginning of the last issue, I think I like that one better. I'm kind of there with you. Uh, I'm a little biased because last issue was so much of the basis of the animated short mm-hmm. that he, I just can't help but forgive it for a lot of its sins. The the romance, the budding. It's interesting. The budding romance of Gwendolyn and Jim. From the previous story, to me, it's complete bollocks. Like, I don't buy it. Right. Them falling for each other. But here, once you just accept that there's a unre- you know unrequited love there, if you will, mm-hmm. um, I'm okay with the romance here. I actually like the romantic angle in this story if you accept the fact that there's a, there is a budding romance. Or I shouldn't say unrequited because I, mean, I think he has feelings for her too. But yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's a tough call. It's like I like half of this one more, and I like half of the other one more. I think is probably the where I'm where I'm sitting with these two. Gwen looks really good in a bikini in the no crap. Well, <laughs> there's a later one too. Uh, when 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 well, I don't want to spoil too much, but Jim 
has a chance to be with her and she's by the pool in the bikini as well. And she's like, Oh goodness. Hello, Gwen. Um, <laughs> now I see Jim's interest. <laughs> so that's yeah. all I've got in my notes. Great story. Really, uh, really fun. Uh, again, a bit formulaic, but next issue, Flakeshire realizes that and breaks the formula. But you know what? When I take a year and a half between these issues, the formula doesn't really seem to bother me. <laughs> Well, and even for the people reading, keep in mind it was a bi-monthly comic. Yeah. So you only read one every two months rather than every month. So, you know. Um, Just as a little note for the issue itself, uh, remember at the time Adventure Comics had a backup story. This Mm -hmm. issue has a backup by who's the character? Oh, someone called Captain Fear. Captain Fear that you and Rob have already talked about on a previous episode. Yeah. Yes, the, we talked about it on Who's That uh, issue no, episode number two was part of the Who's Who podcast feed, and this is the Alex Nino mm-hmm. uh, installments of of Captain Fear, which are just freaking gorgeous. Oh, they're so good. In fact, this is the last installment in the Captain Fear saga that was published in there before he went away for a while and then was picked up by uh, uh, Walt Simonson. Mm-hmm. Gosh, this what do you think so of the artwork? Good. Oh, I love this. Yeah, I'm just flipping through the page and gushing over it like, oh, yeah, this is so good. Jim Aparo and Alex Nino together in a book. Yes, please, more. Mm. It's really good. So. Yep, great stuff. Yeah, I, I don't have much more about this issue either. Um, it's a it's a cool story. I mean, I, I think they were, they're like hitting their stride. And like you, you said, like the next issue in this series is going to have an added page count. The story gets a little bit more in depth and a little bit like kind of like they break the formula, they break the routine a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to get, it's going to go really good places. So uh, yeah, folks can uh, look for that one in 2021. Awesome. I'm jealous of, uh, you know, Reese when he's old enough to talk, it's to do that episode because <laughs> I figured that's all it's going to take to get to it. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, any final thoughts before I let you plug your wares and, and send you out of here? No, folks. It just If you haven't read these, pick up the Wrath of the Spectre trade paperback or find the issues, the reprints, whatever it takes to read these. Uh, the, get out there, read them. They are absolutely worth it. Uh, and then go check out the Ostrander and Mandrake Spectre series. It was really, really exceptional stuff. In fact, there was almost a bit of a dare uh, when, when Ostrander said he wanted to do a Spectre series. Everyone's like, you can't do an ongoing series with that character. There's just It's just not enough there. Well, he proved him wrong. It was great. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, these stories are not collected digitally anywhere that I'm aware of. But um, yeah, if uh, if that's your thing, I would definitely I would co-sign. If you can't find these, look up the Ostrander Mandrake Spectre series from the '90s, which is just really, really good. Um, a whole lot of fun. And yeah, if you can find this, find these issues, or pick up the Wrath of the Spectre trade paperback, worth your money, worth your time to read these. It's so good. So. There's also the Wrath of the Spectre reprint. So, I mean, really, you can get this thing four different ways. Yeah. Buy the original issues, the Wrath of the Spectre reprint comics, individual four issues, Wrath of the Spectre trade paperback, or the Showcase Presents Spectre stories. So, you, you people, you just get, go find them. Just get busy. <laughs> Quit making excuses. My gosh. I tell you, some people. Well, Shag, thank you very much for being my guest. Finally. Took you long enough <laughs> on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where else can folks find you in this very network or other places? That's easy. Just go to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And uh, yeah, I'm on a lot of the shows there Firestorm and Aquaman, Who's Who, the Justice League International, Blah Haha Podcast, Digest Cast, all that kind of stuff. And uh, just popping around and uh, being part of whenever anyone's willing to have me on the show and make me wait three years. So it's perfectly fine. <laughs> I teased you so early on and it just made you wait and wait. <sighs> It, that's that's that sums up Ryan Daly in a nutshell, folks. A tease. That that's him. So, all, all right, right, folks. So- well, this is AJ Frightful. <laughs> Mic drop. 
<laughs> Folks, we are going to take a short promo break now, and after that, Paul Hicks will be back to talk about some Night Force comics. Spectre Night Force? It's almost like I'm going back over the original stated <laughs> like intention of this podcast when it launched. So, stick around for that. Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC event, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very... Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What? What, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. Joining me once again after a too-long hiatus is Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, and the DC Events podcast, DC OCD. And if the two of us are together, you know what we're talking about. Tell them, Paul. Yeah, it must be time for a bit of Night Force. Yeah. Night Force. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should have a theme for that, like something 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Something disco-y. Oh, yeah. We're talking about Night Force, the 1980s horror series written by Marv Wolfman and illustrated by Gene Colan. Paul, the last time we talked about this series on the show, it was the two of us and Dr. Ange covering the second half of the first story arc. Those episodes came out in May of 2017. Has anything of note happened in your life since then? Um, I've started a new podcast since then, so yeah, but we're doing DCOCD. We weren't doing that before. Um, what about you? Anything happened to you? Well, I, you know, I could say that you know I became a father and I have like this whole new addition to my family. But more important than that, I've seen Batman's penis since then. Yeah, <laughs> like that was like that's that's going to be the line of yeah. demarcation now. It was like it used to be like you know BC AD and everything. Now it's 
<laughs> what was your life like before you saw Batman's dick? BP. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's that's a real game changer. Um, I mean, when are we going to see the rest of the Justice League members? That's what I want to know. I mean, Batman has always been the trendsetter, and he's been the first one, but he that had to be part of Grant Morrison's pitch when he takes over Green Lantern. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, yes. Um, good. <laughs> this, is, this is going in a weird direction. I thought we were going to talk about Night Force, but <laughs> maybe you need therapy, Ryan. <laughs> I, I, it's been so long since I've done a midnight show. I, I, just, I, I forget what the format is. Are we supposed to talk about these? Kind of, okay. Um, yeah. This episode, we are going to tackle the second story arc. Now, the first story was seven and a half issues long. This arc is only two and a half. It begins halfway through issue eight, and it concludes in issue ten. Rather than discussing each issue separately, I am going to do the synopses for all three parts together, and we'll talk about the whole story as one piece, and then we will get to the covers, too. This story so is... So, obviously, written for the trade, isn't it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> this story is called Beast, and the creative team is pretty much the usual. The writer and editor, Marv Wolfman, penciler, Gene Colan, inker, Bob Smith, letterer, Todd Klein on issue 8, and then John Costanza on issues 9 and 10. And the colorist is Michelle Wolfman. From Night Force, issue 8, Beast, chapter 1, Runner. Opens with a man named Paul Brooks, mm, suspicious, <laughs> running down the streets of Georgetown away from the cops after he just shot a man. Paul trades gunfire with the police who are led by Detective Short, who we got to know in the previous arc. Throughout the chase, Paul Brooks shoots several police and pedestrians. In return, he takes a bullet to the arm. Meanwhile, not far from the chase, a distraught young woman named Mary Conrad sits in the parlor of Winter's Gate Mansion, telling Baron Winters her tale of terror. She lived in a four-story apartment building on West 76th Street in New York City. Exactly one year ago, she witnessed a shooting star seemingly light up the sky above her building. After that, a mysterious and shapeless creature began killing people in the building. It killed one man running down the stairs, blasting him with some kind of energy that seared the flesh from his bones, leaving nothing but a skeleton. The creature emitted some kind of force field that prevented anyone from opening their doors or leaving the building. Another tenant tried breaking out a window, but the glass wouldn't shatter. That tenant, too, was killed by the monster, reduced to nothing but a skeleton in the hallway. Mary tells Baron Winters that the people in the building were hostages to the monster for a full year, until one day she saw the front door open. She ran outside and called the police. A cop investigated the building, but claimed to have seen nothing out of the ordinary. Miss Conrad thought he was hypnotized somehow. She wandered the streets until, inexplicably, she found the Baron's business card and came to ask for his help. The Baron says he'll need to recruit a new agent for this task, preferably someone expendable. Right about then, Paul Brooks comes shambling up to the mansion, still wounded and outrunning the cops. Winters lets him in and gives him a drink while the murderer catches his breath. The brandy is drugged and Paul Brooks faints. He wakes up on the front stoop of the apartment in New York. Taking cover from the police, Paul ducks into the apartment, only to find that he cannot get out again. The door is locked and at the top of the first flight of stairs is the Beast. 
<laughs> dun, dun, dun. All right. From Night <laughs> Sorry, Force... wrong show. <laughs> From Night Force number nine, Beast Chapter Two, Symbiosis, picks up with Paul freaking out at the sight of the beast on the stairs. He fires two bullets which are absorbed into the creature without any noticeable effect. A tenant named Sylvia comes down the stairs, stepping right around the beast and demanding to know how Paul got inside the building. The door is always locked, she says. No one can get out. But for some reason, it did let Paul in. Another tenant named Mark, who's a little drunk, welcomes the new guy to their building and advises Paul to get drunk too. Mark and Sylvia both tell Paul to ignore the monster and it won't attack. It only attacks if you try to escape. Sylvia leads Paul upstairs to her apartment. They step casually around skeletons and the shapeless monster from beyond the stars. Yet another tenant, Pat Murphy, barges out into the hallway with a shotgun telling them all to be quiet so he and his wife can watch TV. Paul rips the shotgun away from the other man's hands and fires point-blank into the back of what looks like kind of like the beast's head. The shotgun blast has no effect. Pat Murphy takes his gun back and slams the door. Sylvia takes Paul to her apartment to dress his wound. He meets her son, Johnny, and her husband, Ray. She explains that since the creature arrived, no one that she knows of has been allowed to leave, but the creature provides everything they need. Somehow, it restocks their food supplies, it provides them with news, TV, and entertainment. The people in the apartment want for nothing except the freedom to come and go. Before long, Sylvia says most of them just gave up and accepted life under the beast's dictatorship. Her husband barely gets off the couch anymore. He just sits there watching TV. Because he's not already a big enough scumbag, Paul forcibly starts to kiss Sylvia. Her husband objects, very briefly, and then gives up when Paul waves his gun. Sylvia manages to resist Paul and slaps him. Angry, he rushes out into the hall to see the beast. He shoots it again to no effect. Then he simply throws himself at the creature and begins pounding on it with his fists. Finally, Paul crawls away exhausted. Mark and his friend, possibly boyfriend, Teddy, chide Paul, telling him that he should learn to relax like they do. The creature provides all the drugs and alcohol they could want. Teddy clumsily falls down the stairs, splitting his skull and dying right there in front of Paul and Mark. Almost before they can react, the beast slithers, crawls, or oozes down the stairs and covers Teddy's body. When the beast moves on, all that remains of Mark's friend is a pile of white bones. The sight of it causes Paul to run back into Sylvia's apartment and puke in her bathroom. He passes out, and when he awakens, he is even more desperate to escape. He starts pounding on windows and doors, looking for a way out of the building. He barges into Pat Murphy's apartment, only to find that Pat's wife is dead. She died on the first night the creature arrived. Only Pat still sits beside her, watching television. Sylvia's husband, Ray, clocks Paul over the head with a wrench and picks up his gun. Ray says that he wants out too, but the only way he can escape is by putting the gun to his own head. He tells his wife and son that he loves them and shoots himself. As Sylvia and Johnny cry over Ray's body, the beast slides into the room past them. Sylvia screams that she'll make the monster pay, that she'll find some way to kill it, even as the beast devours Ray's corpse. So that's fun. Hmm. Yeah. And from Night Force number 10, Beast Chapter 3, The Monster in Us. 
opens a few hours later as a heavy rainstorm pelts the apartment on West 76th. Sylvia and her son mourn Ray's suicide. To escape his own thoughts, Paul walks out into the hall where a woman named Millie propositions him. He pushes her off, disgusted at how everyone in the building has resigned themselves to the prison where nothing matters. Paul hears screaming from downstairs and rushes down to find a young woman named Jolyn Kennedy. She says her father has gone missing. Sylvia comes down and observes that the creature has also disappeared. It wasn't in the hall or any of the floors he walked down. Pat Murphy comes out with a shotgun claiming that Jolyn's father is hunting the beast and he may have found a way to kill it. They all spread out, searching at different apartments for Dr. Kennedy. Sylvia and Johnny stumble upon the newly dead Mark, who died of a drug overdose. Meanwhile, Dr. Kennedy stalks the beast in the attic. The beast lurks in the rafters above him until one tentacle drapes down, wrapping around Kennedy's head. Downstairs, the group hears the scream and rushes to the attic. They find him still alive, hanging upside down, babbling incoherently. Kennedy had a syringe that he said would kill the beast. Pat Murphy says Kennedy is wrong to attack the beast, that they should all be grateful. He now believes the monster is an angel sent by God, and that it provides everything they could ever need. Disgusted, Paul lashes out at Pat. Johnny notices that the beast is lurking above, watching the men struggle contemptuously. Finally, Paul rips the gun from Pat's hands and fires up the rafters. But the monster is gone. Jolyn says it went downstairs. Paul chases after it and finds a crowd of more tenants in the hall. They say the front door is finally open. Paul says this is their chance to finally escape, to finally break free of the beast's dictatorship. But none of the people will leave. They're paralyzed by fear of the unknown world outside their apartment. The monster comes down the stairs toward them. It hates all of them. It's sickened by how weak and submissive and easily corrupted they are. It's ready to kill them all. Dr. Kennedy throws himself at the beast, shouting for someone to use the syringe to kill it. The monster devours him quickly. Paul shoots it again, but to no avail, and then tries to run out the door. At the last minute, he stops, imploring the others to follow him, but nobody moves. His moment of hesitation dooms him. One of the tentacles wraps around his arm. He tries to fight the creature. Bullets won't hurt. He takes the syringe that Kennedy had, but the needle won't puncture the beast's skin. In desperation, Paul plunges the needle into his own arm, injecting whatever formula the doctor had concocted into his veins. And he realizes, in the moments before death, that the chemical is poisoning him, killing him. In agony, he screams for the other people to run, but they don't. They just watch. The beast kills Paul, dissolving his skin and organs, leaving nothing but bones. But the doctor's syringe did the trick. As soon as the beast devours Paul, it feels the chemical in itself, and it too dies a slow, agonizing death, dissolving into a messy puddle on the floor. Back in Georgetown, Baron Winters tells Mary Conrad that the beast is dead, that of the 17 people who lived in the apartment, only six remain alive, but those six are too transformed by the past year living with the beast. They're too afraid to leave their homes, too afraid to engage with the real world. Mary Conrad leaves Winters Gate hoping that those people can recover somehow, someday.
So, Paul, what did you think of this one? Well, it's it's a mixed bag, isn't it, Ryan? It's all, it's, it's all over the shop. I mean, uh, I enjoyed your recaps because it makes it all sound a lot more um, straightforward than it read, uh, particularly that you took all the time to keep track of all, who all the players were and which apartments they belonged to and how they were related to each other because um, it's, it's like a game of Clue except people don't have distinctive colours and things like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's odd. I mean, is the beast a metaphor? I mean, it seems to... Uh, like, the fact that it provides everything they need. Like, I was trying to catalogue its powers at one point. So it does, like... um. Uh, force blasts that turn people into skeletons. It does um, mystical structural reinforcement to stop people going through windows. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to have some hypnotism. Um, it also has um, magical shopping abilities and uh, <laughs> you know helps people get... Like at one stage, um, the little boy, he gets uh, a new computer and uh, um, they get new TVs and things like that. And they're getting food and drink and drugs. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you can also extrapolate that the beast is a mystical bill payer. Um, <laughs> You know, taking care of all the paperwork and and that sort of stuff. You know, and back in this day, paying bills, you couldn't do it on the internet. Right. So, yeah. So, I'm not sure how that happens. Uh, The Beast has hypnotism because the police come and visit and they don't see anything out of the ordinary. Um, It also has sort of acid-absorbing... Well, it seems to just slither over the people and they dissolve. So, there's that as well. Have I missed any? Um, Um, uh, It's impervious to bullets and shotguns, which they they shoot at this thing like seven or eight times. And you'd think, okay, after the first time, it's not working. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it it has a lot of contempt and has an inner monologue with itself and sort of... uh, Yeah, the inner monologue is a little bit weird because you get the impression that it's it's from a race of these beings that do this to different planets. This one has done this before and it basically just, it drives these, like, its subjects to destruction. But it's kind of like, is it for study? Is it for entertainment? Is it just trying to find out, like, which species deserve to live? And it's kind of like judging humanity cruelly like these people don't don't aren't worth it because they don't resist they're too easily but then when they try to resist it's ready to kill them so <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a little bit muddled but i mean uh, it's an enjoyable monster i mean the in silhouette it looks awesome uh in some of the shots where you see it clearly it looks a little bit like a, a an old throw rug that's been attacked by dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's yeah it's like a it's a bad like Muppet that's off the strings. It's just kind of like <laughs> there. Um, yeah, but I got the impression that um, Marv was just sort of going with the writing flow with this. Like it seemed to just have a very organic, you know, this will happen next and that'll happen next, and it didn't really seem to have a big picture. Like um, halfway through, I thought, is the, is the beast a metaphor for consumerism and the fact that everyone's trapped because they want to have things and you know it's uh, ruining their lives or you know you know whether they choose. You know, television or drugs or alcohol or or lots of people own guns in this. I, I, I don't know how that related. Yeah. Um, but then it swerves away from it. It's like it's it's not really committed to being a metaphor for it as well. Well, they also um, I, I think like the Sylvia character says more than once, like brings up the the dictatorship metaphor. But it's it's sort of so so obvious 
that it's like, yeah, this thing gives us everything we want except for freedom. But it's like, mm. uh, like, uh, okay, what are you trying to say? Like, what is what is holding you back? Like that people, like, and by the end of it, like, what is Marvel's intention that like people are so broken down by this that they're afraid to live free lives that they just they want the the order and they uh, the sort of fascistic feeling I, I yeah i i can't even yeah i'm not sure like he she he brings up these ideas but i don't know how he plays them off or or if he pays them off yeah and the other point where that came through was um masculinity is like like the introduction that Paul Brooks gets, um, and you know, it'd be great if PJ Frightful could read it out. But um, it's it's all basically what a horrible person Paul is, and how he does this, and he hurts people, and he, you know, he went to jail, and this guy taught him the fun of killing, and then he killed that guy, <laughs> and then he got out of jail, and you know, and he, you know, he's really is running around just shooting people randomly, and the cops seem very incompetent. The fact that you know they're chasing him one minute, and then he's behind them the next minute, and you know, and all this sort of stuff, but. Once he gets into the house, you know, Sylvia, you know, he's like, hey, I'm a real man and I'm going to, you know, take charge of you and, you know, show you what a real man's like. And she's like, oh, stop it, stop it. Oh, you know, and it's it's very, I don't know, it, it's it's kind of trying to say things about masculinity, but there's never a counterpoint. Like every single man in it is, is either weak or deluded or et cetera. And unfortunately, by default, Paul becomes the hero because – no one else competes in the well, slightest. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's that was one of my big issues with this is Marvel. You're right. Like the way he starts off, the whole first page of this chapter is just describing who Paul was and basically saying this guy is a terrible person and he has no right to be. He didn't come from a bad or broken home or whatever. He he had like everything sort of to be just kind of an average slug, but there's just something about this guy that he's bad and he's a criminal and he's, yeah, he's running down the street. He's shooting at cops. He's shooting at pedestrians. Like we see right from the beginning, this is an unlikable and irredeemable person. But then the way it's set up is like, he's, he is our protagonist and it's really hard to make the protagonist so unlikable because at some point you get to the point when you put him up against something like the beast, which one am I rooting for? Because if the beast kills Paul Brooks, I don't miss him. I don't care if he dies because yeah, because he's a scumbag. He's a murderer. He like he shoots little kids on the street and everything like that. But if he beats the beast, it's like, well, does that make him the hero? Or if he's kind of like the champion who's going to save all of these people, it's like, well, I don't want him to be the hero. Like, I don't want this guy to, to be victorious in any way. So it's kind of like, it, it hurts the stakes a little bit of the, of the story. So I wonder, like, what is it about his character? Like, why is he the one person who is right for this story to be the protagonist? Like, what is it about his, his nature? Is there something about his nature, I guess, that, that makes him the right person to fight this this creature and and ultimately spare these people their their fate, um, mm. it might it might just be something like of his the anti authority anti establishment. He's just such a I, I don't want to call him like rebel because it's more than that, but he he's such a, like a, a a counterpoint to like society to structure and order and everything. He's he's such an agent of chaos and disorder in the sort of natural life that. He won't stand to fall into that dictatorship, the, the kind of the harsh rule that the creature imposes on this apartment. He he buckle he breaks against it, and that gives him the avenue to like fight it where everybody else just kind of gives up. I I don't know. 
Well, I mean, that's the failing of this story because I don't think everyone else had given up. I mean, you, like Sylvia is an incredibly strong uh, mm-hmm. character. She's been living in this, you know, this hell for a year, raising a son. Her husband has checked out completely. Right. Yeah, um, to the point where he doesn't even really resist when he sees this guy trying to take advantage of his wife, like throw himself on his wife. The guy's like, hey, don't do uh, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. She could have been the hero of the story. She could have been the one who mm-hmm. sacrificed herself and injected herself. And, you know, the story would work better, you know, because she's more, you know, admirable. And, you know, she seems to have this inner strength and she doesn't give up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she just gets, I think she's just a victim of early 80s sexual politics that she can't be the star. And she has to be, you know, smacked around a bit. But, you know, right. she's a tough broad and. You know, it, it, yeah, I was very confused by what it was trying to say, and I just concluded that I don't think it's really trying to say anything. I think it was sort of flow of consciousness writing and storytelling, and that's probably uh, it. Yeah, or I'm just missing missing the point. You know that you know there's so many people who seem to have surrendered to the beast, sort of have mishaps. Yeah. Or, I think that's I think that's it. That Wolfman just wanted to tell like a short story about some sort of Cthulhu style monster or something that invades this place and who's trapped there. Yeah, but you go to bait and switch because it sets up the fact that, you know, Paul is so incredibly horrible and, you, you know, I'm not talking about myself, by the way, um, <laughs> that you want to see him, you know, die, you know, horribly, mm-hmm. you know, but also, you know, the Baron's going to use him to save the day by, you know, so, you know, raising the uh, mysterious fog and then uh, giving him a, a bit of a Cosby roofie and getting him over there. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I enjoyed it. I mean, visually, it's really good. You know, the monster lurking in the shadows and everything. Everyone looks a bit lumpy. So, they, you know, right. their ages could be, you know, anywhere from 25 to 60. It's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, we all like the story of the monster in the, you know, the creepy monster crawling around. Right. But, I mean, this one spends a lot of time just sitting around in open view. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just it's kind of there. That sort of takes away some of the... It's still creepy, but it's not necessarily scary because it's not like it's lurking in the shadows and it pops out. It's just sitting there on the stairs, like, like the landlord. It's like, like that's that probably should have been the title for it, but um, yeah, it's a gender is very passive. Like it really waits for people to do things that uh, annoy it, or <laughs> yeah, you know. Otherwise, it's just happy to sit around and you know feed everyone. Yeah, and then it just waits for some guy to just like trip and fall down the stairs, and once that guy's dead, it's like, all right, I'll clean up the the skin and the bodily fluids and the organs <laughs> like a vacuum cleaner but um yeah but a, a very different change of pace in the night force and mm-hmm. you know the fact that you know the baron isn't operating with his you know his trusty team of underlings who can get maimed but uh, rather someone who's not on his side at all it's yeah interesting yeah and i guess i guess my thing with this one is the baron could have been taken out of the story entirely yeah, absolutely. Like, like we almost don't need his framing narrative. Like we get, like Mary Conrad or whoever is in the in the Baron's like mansion or whatever explaining the story. That could have been Sylvia telling Paul what happened. Um, the whole intro with Paul running around shooting at the cops that didn't have to be in Georgetown. That could have been in New York, and he could have just taken cover in this building, and that's that's how he ends up there. So I think the whole thing with the like, this could have been a story outside of Night Force. And maybe Marv Wolfman imagined this story as, like, a short short story separate from that and just kind of tweaked it and changed it. But Yeah, I mean, it's got a very, you know, Tales from the Crypt sort of, mm-hmm. you know, vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it, I mean, perhaps it suffers from being too long, you know, that it sort of wanders all over the place. Yeah, 
Yeah, because there is a lot of repetition too, uh, and, and maybe that's yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's considering it's you know like a third of the length of the previous story arc, but it still feels too long. Maybe it should have just been, you know, one one chapter or like two issues instead of the two and a half. It might just be a little bit too long, but. Um, there's there's one line. It's in issue eight. It's on page thirteen. It's when Paul's running from the cops. It's the last text box. In prison, Paul learned the fine art of crime, a practice he has since mastered. I get what Marv is going for, but like the, he learned in prison, he learned the fine art of crime. I was like, Marv, that's like the dumbest sentence I've read in a while. Oh <laughs> uh, dear. Uh, in terms of the art, I mean, it's. We've we've said this about all of them. It's it's Gene Cole and Bob Smith. It's the same art team, and I it's pretty consistently good. I mean, it, it's I I love this art team. I love the work that they do. Um, I who is it? I was listening to an episode of Back to the Bins, and Paul Spataro and J. David Weeder were talking about some Daredevil issues by uh, by Colin, and they I, I think Paul was the one who described it that. Gene Colan always dis- always draws people as if they're in motion. Like when you look at the panels, it never looks like it's like a snapshot or like the characters are posed in a certain position. It always looks like he's catching people in the middle of doing something, and that's just that's very true. It's a very good description of his work. And yeah, yeah, they're not not who's who entries, right? Even I mean, even like details like the fact that Paul. The way he looks, like he doesn't look like a leading man. He's he's like balding at the top, but he's got kind of like long shoulder length, blonde, curly hair. Um, just sort of an unconventional looking character to be the hero of a comic book. I don't know. It's just he looks like a potato. Potato hair. <laughs> yeah. The beast, yeah, as as described, it's just kind of like this shapeless. It, Oh, it looks like like Snuffleupagus or something like that. It's it's you kind of see like hands and feet with claws that help it move, but like then it just has these tentacles that just kind of like fan out like like hoses sort of yeah, just kind of like spread out and everything. It just sort of slumps and slithers or, or oozes down the stairs and. It's a little bit of elephant in it. Like yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. It is Snuffleupagus. Yeah, because one of the yeah, one of but... the tentacles has almost like a trunk like thing, like an elephant or like man thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it's in uh, issue nine um, after the, the creature devours the the guy on the stairs or whatever. Paul runs upstairs, throws up in the bathroom in the toilet, and then the bottom panel is on page seventeen. He's just lying face down on their couch. He's like buried his head in the pillow, <laughs> and, and like Sylvia's there like with her hand on his back, and even the little boy is just like trying to comfort him. He's like, "It's not so bad," and he's like, "Are you people insane?" Yeah, I mean, I wondered, was that an attempt to humanize him and, you know, turn the um, sympathy towards him to make him more empathetic? But, uh, you know, it's it's, he's um, too irredeemable. Yeah. And then, like, I mean, he he kind of he starts to force himself on Sylvia and like tries to kiss her. And almost you kind of wonder if that's what he wants or if he's doing it just to get a rise out of her husband or he's he's testing the waters. But then in, in Chapter 10, this other woman kind of throws herself at him. And he pushes her away. He like wants nothing to do with it. I'm kind of like, why doesn't he just go into her room and sleep with her? Like, yeah, ones that are hard to get. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And the ending is very, you know, everyone's still stuck there because they're so traumatized, and uh, it's uh, that's really sad for Sylvia because I didn't think she was that, that yeah. traumatized all the way through. Yeah, that was kind of like the biggest disappointment. Is like, why 
she she seemed to be the one person that like still had her her wits about her and still kind of had enough of the situation that she hadn't been broken, especially when she's lashing out at the creature at the end of issue nine after it, it's devouring her husband who just killed himself. You'd think that the presence of Paul would have been enough to kind of like snap them out, but she certainly, you think she would have run out of there and escaped. Um, and why, you know, what was special about Mary, the, the one who goes to Winter's Gate Mansion? Like, why is she the one who's allowed to leave and kind of set this whole thing up? Yeah, I- but that's the only way uh, Baron Winters can hear about it. So. Right, right. Yeah. So. I mean, there was uh, a return of Night Force tropes that I really like, and that's um, the uh, one-sided conversations with Merlin. So they, <laughs> yes. they were back. I enjoyed some of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, Baron is definitely hearing Merlin say things that no one else is hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the middle of issue nine, there's um, Faces in the Storm again. Yeah. Or at the start of issue ten. Yeah. That was all the way through Night Force. Uh, the early issues was the, in whenever there was storms and things in the street or fog, it would always had um, monstrous faces. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like on um, in issue ten on page ten. Yeah, there's like a crack of lightning as they're looking outside, and you see like the, the monster's face out there in the storm outside the building. Yeah, that's good. And Winter's always telling, he's saying, "It's like, yeah, this is probably a suicide mission. I'll need one of my, I'll need to contact a new agent or whatever." And then this guy just kind of conveniently plops down. On his, he's like, "Oh, you look like I could use you. Let me drug you and drop you off." So, <laughs> yes, so. yes. Always trust old men who can drug people at a moment's notice. <laughs> that's guy. That's one of his powers. <laughs> the very enigmatic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Baron Winters, but you know he's got that drugged brandy on hand, and, yeah. and he's a fog machine. He can create fog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He just kind of creates it to let to trick the cops. So, um, looking at the covers, um, you and me and Doctor Ange on the last episode covering Night Force, we looked at the cover to issue eight. Uh, but just going at it again, and I haven't re-listened to that, so I don't remember everything that we said, but I I really like this cover. To me, this cover seems like it could have been uh, from like an old issue of House of Mystery or House of Secrets, one of their old DC anthology horror books. Um, from like the 70s or something like that. Just like this idea of a, a character we don't know, kind of slovenly, everyday guy, like holding a gun. He's in this dark building like or with, a, with a staircase. There are bones and skeletons on the stairs and some sort of slimy creature at the top. Um, I just, I really like that image. I like that it, that is an image that tells a story in itself. Um, but the one thing that we talked about, his shoes... <laughs> just, I do remember you bringing that up. His feet are like way too big. Yeah, and orange. And orange, they're too orange. Yeah, yeah. I like I like the contrast of orange and green in the cover. But um, yeah, I I, I really like the cover to issue eight. Did you have anything else? I mean, we've we've talked about it already, but um, I think that's the best drawing of the creature in the whole arc as well on the cover there. Yeah, I I think I probably agree with you. And maybe part of it is the coloring, although it's just it's just sort of a shade, like a grayish black with like red eyes. But yeah, you probably get more of a sense of its definition there. Yeah, we, unlike on uh, issue number nine's cover, uh, I, the, I, I the do colorist not, went nuts on it. So I do not like the cover to issue nine. 
Um, we, we see the creature in foreground, which the creature should never be in the foreground because it's just this lump of stuff. And then a sort of ghostly image of Baron Winters behind it. And then the mansion, maybe in, in like the back, like on a hill by the full moon and everything. It's like, I don't think that's the setup for the mansion. That's where it looks. So it's just kind of like this weird sort of gothic looking background, but with this very, unnatural like Lovecraftian monster in the foreground but there's just like a lot of like dead space towards the bottom of the page that's like it's not like I I, I don't know it's not like it should just be like black but it's ah gosh you're right like the coloring is just ruining this yeah, and the, I mean, it's made it look like the um, the monster is wearing a wig and yeah. then a, a dead jellyfish or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly. I was going to say it looks like it's something wearing a wig or a hat, and you're right; that, it looks like a jellyfish is sitting on top of it. Yeah, and the, the blood red sky at the background just puts it over the top. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know, it's too much color for a story so dark. Right? Maybe they meant this to be an unofficial crisis tie-in. <laughs> they covered a ten. Uh, much better. Um, it's we we see it's an overhead shot. We see uh, Sylvia, her son, and Paul kind of wandering around, looking through like a room, probably the attic. With um, we're look kind of looking down at them through this kind of like broken rafters, and we just see like the the hand and like some of the tentacles of the monster just kind of around the edges, like they're gonna spring down. So it's cool. It's creepy. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's the wrong cover for the last chapter because um, that would be a much better cover for issue nine because, mm. you know, it creates more mystery about the monster again. But, you know, by this stage, you've seen the monster so many times on two covers already. So, right. you know, it, <laughs> that's true. It's like putting the monster back in the shadows suddenly. It's a, a little bit too late, but uh, it, <laughs> it looks good. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. It, yeah, it's a good image. It looks like it's something that could have been inside, but the wrong focus or the wrong timing. Yeah, that's a good point. But that's all I have to say about the covers. Yeah, and that's really all, all I've got to say. It's I liked this story. Um, it's it's tough. It's one of those things where when you hold it to scrutiny because of a podcast or something like this, when you look deep down, you you tend to see more problems and more faults with it. But at a quick read, it's fine. It's generally just kind of like a, a nice, entertaining horror story. Um, I, I think it could have been better. It could have been improved upon, but it wasn't. It didn't turn me off. I wasn't kind of like, blah, this is a waste of my time, or this series is really going downhill. It wasn't anything like that. Um, it was a nice little shorter interlude after the last story, which was uh, very long, very sort of epic in, in length and scope because we were like going all over the globe. This one is much more confined like by, by its nature and by the, by the theme of sort of being trapped in like this closed building. I, I, I liked it, but when you're... I, I could... I could nitpick a lot about it, but if I just sort of step back, it's enjoyable. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it. I mean, yeah, the more you think about it, the less sense it makes, but if mm-hmm. you just uh, breeze through it, yeah, it, it's much more. Um, uh, yeah. It just, it's a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it for, uh, night force issues eight through 10. This is the second story arc. Uh, the next time we get together, we are going to discuss issues 11 through 14, which was the third and final Night Force story arc from this original run. Um, so, uh, yeah, Paul, 
thank you very much for like a year and a half later coming back and uh, revisiting the series. Uh, looking forward to finishing it up sometime in the future. Uh, until we until we talk again, uh, tell the tell the listeners where they can hear from you. Uh, you can hear me mostly on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and also on the same feed with Waiting for Doom, we have DCOCD now, which is our uh, very exciting podcast where we go through every single uh, DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths, and uh, we give them all a score, and we're ranking them, which is uh, very nerdy, uh, but we enjoy doing that. That's with uh, Mike and myself, and we have uh, often have guests in because Mike doesn't own all the events that I own. Uh, what do you think was the most surprising of the events that you've covered so far in terms of where it landed, very high or very low score? Uh, I'd have to say zero hour. Um, did much worse than I remembered. So uh, when we we read it again, neither of us enjoyed it very much. Uh, so I think there was a lot of nostalgia around Zero Hour that's misplaced. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think something like uh, Underworld Unleashed is probably underrated, um, mm-hmm. even though un- people are talking about it right now. But uh, yeah, but uh, you know, there were no some were no surprise at all. Like uh, Genesis by John Byrne, that landed exactly where we thought it would <laughs> land, right at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never read that, but just listening to the episode and the description, I'm like, oh boy, I'm glad I never wasted my time on this. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, uh, as always, it's great to talk to you about these books. Um, hopefully, it won't be another like 15 months before we get to uh, the last story arc. So, uh, until next time. Paul, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Uh, Listeners, we're going to play another promo break, and then I'll be back with listener feedback. Don't go away. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. Costumes on. Last episode, which came out just before Halloween, was the Vampire Special that featured me and Max Romero talking about the short story The Castaways, and then me and my wife Angela talking about the first chapter of I, Vampire. We got some great feedback for that show on the Fire and Water website, which, as always, you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Chris Franklin, my co-host on Batman Nightcast, as well as the host of Supermates Podcast and JLU Cast with his lovely wife, Cindy. Chris said, I have always wanted to read the entire I, Vampire saga, having met Andrew Bennett in his one-off appearance in The Brave and the Bold months before that book was canceled. That story involved Mary and the Blood Red Moon as well. I did peruse a few of the issues in my ex-brother-in-law's collection, but I need to jump into a trade of this. I do think the garish color on the scans detracts from Tom Sutton's artwork. Have you seen some of his Charlton horror work? Disturbingly frightful, at almost a Stephen Bissett John Tottlebin level. Yeah, I, I, what little I have seen has looked really, really good, like in that uh, at the Charlton level, or the sorry, the Charlton era. Uh, Chris also said, Angie's car ride treatise on vampires was fascinating. I consider myself pretty learned on the subject myself, so if we ever have another fire and water get-together, I know what conversation I'm going to strike up. Nothing like talking about bloated corpses and graveyard desecrations with someone you've just met. Uh, 
That's we'll consider that a date at, at some undisclosed time in the future. Uh, Rob Kelly from the Treasury Cast, Digest Cast, Mash Cast, and many other shows right here on the Fire and Water Network. Uh, he said of the Eye Vampire cover that Joe Kubert cover is superb, of course, as is Jim Aparo's work on Tomorrow I Hang, of course, times two. Funny, by this point, Aparo was a DC superstar, yet he kept doing these little horror jobs now and again. I can only assume he liked the change of pace. I'm sure DC would have given him more Batman if he wanted. Uh, Rob also said that my segment with Angie driving around in our car had a very Badlands feel to it. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog and the Legion of Superbloggers said he loved the creepy artwork on the castaways and he loved hearing about the way the history and legend of vampires has changed over time. Ange also said I, Vampire, was one of the characters in the wildly meta Doctor 13 story by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang, and I have heard good things about the new 52 series. Anyone out there read that book? Uh, To which Siskoid of many shows here on the Fire and Water Network. Uh, Siskoid said he thought the new 52 I, Vampire story was really good with brilliant art. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said it wasn't bad, but Andrew looked too twilighty. And later on in the comments section down the line, Jimmy McGlinchey also highly recommends the new 52 I, Vampire book. Uh, I only read the first issue of that series. Uh, The story didn't grab me right away, but I do remember loving the art by Andrea Sorrentino, who eventually went on to a really good run on Green Arrow with Jeff Lemire. Uh, Brian Linton said, Excellent discussion on vampires, both in and out of comics. I hadn't really thought about it before, but vampires do have this interesting juxtaposition of predatory savagery and genteel sophistication. In some ways, it reminds me of the dual nature of the Banner-Hulk character. There must be something about that duality that fascinates us as human beings, given the popularity of characters like vampires and the Hulk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've always kind of thought of the Hulk a little bit more like a werewolf or a Jekyll and Hyde type of thing, if we're going with a kind of classic monsters, but... Yeah, there's. I mean, the the duality of man and monster is all throughout classic monsters, including vampires. And the Hulk was originally created to be more of a monster character than a superhero. Uh, Brian said, I also enjoyed the discussion of eternal life and what lengths we would go to obtain it. I believe that we as mortal beings have this knee-jerk reaction that assumes eternal life is a great thing to possess. The older I've grown, and the more I've thought about it, the more I realize that it's really only under a rather narrow set of circumstances that I would want to live forever. FYI, giving up my soul to gain eternal life is not one of those circumstances. Lots of interesting things to think about. Thanks. Well, thank you for writing in, Brian, and you know, glad we could give you some food for thought. Uh, Martin Gray came back to say, Great episode as usual. I remember reading The Castaways and being disappointed by the downbeat ending. I enjoyed the craft, though. Yeah, it was good, good story, good artwork, really. Then Martin said, I read I, Vampire in House of Mystery from start to finish. Bruce Jones later took over as writer and kept up the quality. It was great to hear Angela with her insights. When you two get to Edinburgh, we have got to drag you on a ghost tour. A, a ghost tour in Edinburgh? Yeah, done. <laughs> I'm sure we would love that. 
and finally, Jimmy McGlinchey said, Listening to you and Max Romero talk about the castaways put me in mind of the two-parter from Giffen and Clark's Doom Patrol about the aristocrats, a family of immortals who have to go from country to country seeking shelter. While I do not think they were strictly vampires, they did have a habit of biting the noses or killing staff and were often used by their patrons for torture and murder, and in the Doom Patrol issues, did so under the guise of hosting a ball. Quite a fun issue if you have a chance to read it. That actually, yeah, that sounds like a really fun story. I would think. When you first mentioned the aristocrats, I thought this was going to be a really long and dirty joke, but uh, and I'm actually surprised that Giffen wouldn't go for that. Um, but yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, yeah, that is going to be all for this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Next time... Uh, well, I have no idea when the next episode will drop. Uh, I am hoping it'll be around January or February. It should include Paul Hicks and I discussing the final issues of the original Night Force story. And then, you know, I can put that saga to rest and never need to talk to Paul again. I, you know, of course, I am joking. I love Paul. And the thing that I really like about him is... Oh, well, out of time. member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.